Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Um, we've been doing a series on grief uh, for the whole month of November, and we've had a couple support groups that have been going on for grief as well. Uh, we have a group uh, on Tuesday nights that's been dealing with issues of lost loved ones, those that have had loved ones who have died, whether recently or even over the past several years. Uh, this time of year seems to be a difficult one for many people. Uh, it is a joyous time because of Thanksgiving and food and Christmas and gifts, but it can also be a very painful time of year. And so we have support groups going on for that. We have another one that's starting up this next week, specifically led by Christy Pittman, that will address issues that are not specifically death-related as much as they are a loss of job or a loss of friendships or opportunities or those kind of things. And it'll be 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings in LC3 there, one of our classrooms here. So, And hope is that by next Sunday we will be back in the sanctuary. Uh, it's moving right along at a steady clip, the construction project and, and getting things set and ready. And we've got teams of volunteers and construction workers and all of that that have been working diligently, late hours of the night, some of them, days off, those kind of things coming in to make that a reality. And I want to be able to, when we get into that space, talk to you about all of the people that have worked on this project, uh, some that have taken off like a week of time from their jobs to be able to help work on this and save the church tens of thousands of dollars, quite frankly. So we'll talk about that when we get into the space, but hopefully next week that'll be the day. All right, so as we get into our message today, I want to talk about the hope of grief. Yes, there can be hope in the grieving process, because if there is no hope in the grieving process, uh, then you grieve, when you grieve without hope, you grieve in some real desperate situation. So we're going to talk about what it means to grieve with hope this morning. How many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of George Bernard Shaw? Have you heard the name at least? <clears throat> he was a great British playwright in the early 1900s. Uh, very famous atheist, too. Didn't believe in God. But on his deathbed, he actually recanted some of that and was somewhat sorrowful for the way he tried to destroy faith or people's faith in God. Listen to what he says. In his last writings, we read, The science to which I pin my faith is bankrupt. Its counsels, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. Now think of a time he lived in when you would have World War I come along, and then World War II come along, it devastated the continent of Europe. He said, I believed in science and its councils at one time. And in their name, I helped to destroy the faith of millions of worshipers in the temples of a thousand creeds, he writes. And now they look at me, a witness, and excuse me, they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. <clears throat> Can you imagine? 
I've seen a lot of believers in Christ who come to the same acknowledgement of having said, I've lived my life for Christ all of this time and have come to the place where they just don't believe it anymore. But I guess the question is, where does most of the evidence lie? It's not this battle between science and reasoning and faith. Those things can be complementary. It's only the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy that, that forces us to believe that those things are incompatible. And so this is not a message on science and religion today, but the reality is, where is our source of faith? Because without a sense of faith in something that is beyond us, that is eternal, and we believe that to be God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here at North Main, anything outside of that is fleeting and fading. And so where do you put your hope? <clears throat> I've done many a funerals in 23 years. And I've been at funerals that are extremely hopeless. I've been at funerals that are extremely hope-filled. And those are the ones where the one who has died had a strong faith in Christ. And when they died, they professed on their dying breath that Jesus was their Lord. And you have no question, you have no question about the hope of their eternity. Those are some of the best funerals to do if you can say a funeral is something fun to do. The ones where you're celebrating a life lived in faith for Christ who has gone on because you know that that is not the end. The one who is in the casket is still living a life beyond the flesh in the presence of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But those who die without faith die without hope. And those they leave behind are also left oftentimes hopeless. And those are some of the worst funerals to do. It's hard to be a pastor who speaks the truth and to continue to try to speak the truth in a situation like that when people are desperate to cling on to a sense of hope, even though it seems that there is no hope. Those are desperate situations. I did one not too long ago that was rough and difficult. And quite frankly, was one of the most hopeless situations I had stepped into. The only hope we can have is in Christ Jesus. So Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, not all of it, but most of it, wrote a letter that we consider really his masterpiece, his magnum opus. It's really his theological treatise on Christianity of the old uh, Christianity and its view on the Old Testament, the New Testament, the old Adam, the new Adam in Christ, the law versus faith and grace. And, and so when Paul writes this letter, he establishes a foundation for where he's going to go with the rest of the letter. And in Romans chapter 8, right smack dab in the middle, he gives us a sense of our reason for hope. And you would think it would be like because everything's good, everything's peaceful. Uh, hope only comes when everything's perfectly working the way that it should. But that's not what Paul says here. If you actually turn with me to Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 18, I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. This is what Paul says. He says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he, re he will reveal to us later. Who is the he that will reveal something to us later? He's talking about Christ. He's talking about God. He says, listen. We're suffering right now, 
And, and many of us have questions as to why are we suffering? What are the, what are the reasons behind it? And, and, and how can we actually have a sense of comfort in the midst of such desperate situations? And he says, if you hold on, there will be things that you will see then that you cannot see now. So, Brandon, what you're telling me is Paul was saying, in order to find out what we hope for is true, we have to wait till we die. In the fullest sense of the matter, I'm going to say yes, but we get glimpses of that in the here and now. And so listen to what Paul goes on to write. He says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal, to, uh, reveal who his children really are. Okay, so I thought everybody on the face of the earth was God's child. That's what I've been told. It's what the TV tells me, the newspapers. It's what everybody is a child of God or God's child just by de facto they are a creation of God. Well, that's not what Scripture tells us. And I know that's not a popular thing to say even in a church right now because it's not a great church growth tactic to say, well, not everybody's a child of God. It sounds exclusive, and we don't like exclusivity. We like inclusivity because that's what our culture's promoting. But the reality is there is a right or wrong, a good and a bad, and there is truth and falsehoods. And so when we look at Scripture, we look at Scripture through the lens as believers in Christ of realizing that that is the word of God and the word of God is true. So then who are God's children? Those who do the will of the Father. Those who are called by the name of Christ. Those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ through faith are God's children. And so he says all of creation is groaning in great anticipation. Some of your passages of scripture, some of your versions of scripture say, groaning, awaiting that day when God's children will be revealed. Have you ever questioned whether or not a person was saved? Right? But it's not ours to judge, right? God knows all. He knows what's in the heart of men and women, and we don't. This is why Jesus oftentimes says something like, check out your own situation before you try to speak into somebody else's, right? It's the speck versus the log idea in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 8. Before you go and get the speck out of somebody else's eye, check on the log in your own first. And so we aren't called to judge. We aren't called to point fingers of condemnation, but we are called to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love. It's good to assume the best in others, but the reality is truth is shown eventually over time in the way a person lives and the way they don't live. So he goes on to say, verse 20, against its will, listen to this, have you ever thought of it this way? Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. Go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Whenever we talked about this, I actually talked about this a, a month or two ago. I can't remember. Oh, it was in September during our marriage series. And we were talking about the curse and where all relationships went off the rails, especially the marriage relationship and the relationship between God and man. We talked about this. What was cursed in Genesis 3? The man and woman were not cursed. It was the ground that was cursed. Do you remember that? When Adam was cursed. He, he was told the consequences of his behavior would lead to the curse of the ground from which he came and the sustenance from which he would try to derive some type of living. So what is now Paul 
relating. He's saying, I know, the, I know the, the fall narrative. I understand the creation narratives. And see, he said, God subjected the earth and all of creation to the curse against man and woman. So keep it in that perspective. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when God will join when it will join God's glorious children or God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. So what's dying? Is everything dying and decaying and weathering and changing? What's interesting is, uh, especially now, and I don't mean this in any kind of way that's mean or hurtful, but we hate change, don't we? Not everybody does. There are some people, the weird ones out there, like, let's change everything all the time, right? But we like some consistency. We like things to stay the same because familiarity is comfortable, correct? But we don't live in a world like that. And actually, the change we experience now oftentimes is not good change. Some change is good. But oftentimes, the change we experience is not good. Let me ask you, if you look the same way you did 10 years ago, have you changed? Have you changed from 20 years ago? Some of you are like, I wasn't even born, so yeah. Yeah. Some of you who are old enough, uh, how were you 40 years ago compared to now? You the same? You may be the same inside, but I'm going to guess even some of your perspectives have changed. I remember the first time I came to this church, 10 years ago, there was a pastor's class on Wednesday nights, the old Wednesday night service. How many of you remember that? Okay, Dave Brown was the pastor then, and he would do a Wednesday night class in the parlor over here, and uh, I was the newbie on the block. I was in my 30s at the time, and uh, there was this skepticism by a lot of people. Well, how is he going to be? Is he going to change? And there was, I told you, there were rumors, even within the first year, Brandon is taking out all the pews. It hadn't even crossed my mind at the time. I'm just getting my footing, trying to figure out how, but what, what is this Butler thing and this North Main thing? And uh, I wasn't even thinking about those things. And so on Wednesday night, I was getting, uh, yeah, after a few months, I was getting pushback about the music, about my style of dress, which is not proper for a pastor, I've been told, and, and all of those different things. And so I started asking these questions, and some of you may remember this. As I said, how many of you in this, in this, in this room right now were brought up in the church and women were not allowed to wear slacks or pants? All right? Okay? Yeah. How many of you are wearing slacks today? Yeah, okay, me too. And um, zippers on the correct side, though. I'll just tell you that much. All right, so what about, how many of you were told, brought up to believe that playing cards was wrong and evil and would send you to hell? All right, I grew up in the Bible Belt in Kentucky. Playing cards was of the devil, unless it was rook or something like that, because that was blessed by God. But all other, like, rummy and all that stuff, <laughs> right? Or, uh, and how many of you play now? Okay, and then how many, how many of you um, taught that movies were a sin? You never step foot in a movie theater, or you're going straight to hell. What if the roof caved in? It was a straight ticket to hell. No matter how good the movie was, movies were sinful. How many of you were taught that growing up? 
Okay, now, how many of you have seen a movie within the past four weeks, right? Even in the comfort of your own home. Okay, okay, right, right. So what's the difference? Because this is where the church often gets off the rails, is it makes into doctrine and solid teaching those gray areas of Scripture. What should be dictating cultural norms? The truth of the word. And the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, who was Christ. He was the embodiment of the word of God. And so Jesus addresses these issues too in his day and age. Because guess what the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, had done when Jesus stepped onto the scene? They had started making cards a sin and slacks a sin and going to the movie. Now, I'm being facetious, but think back 2,000 years ago. What would have been considered sinful? Jesus was confronting the religious junk that had been put into place that wasn't even a part of God's word, but they had made it a part of God's word because they were the authority. And so they became very legalistic. This isn't my message for today, but this is very important because I want you to understand this. A church that has traditions is not a bad church, but if those traditions trump the word of God instead of the word of God trumping the traditions, then we get a problem. Traditions serve a purpose, but change is inevitable. As we've already talked about, the culture changes, but the church should stay the same because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The problem is the church often in our culture over the decades has shifted and changed to try to adapt to a culture that is changing in a way that we can't keep up with, nor were we required to keep up with it in the first place. We have been deceived by the enemy who seeks to kill, steal, kill, and destroy to believe that in order to reach the community, we have to become like the community. But the problem is, in order to become like the community, many churches are compromising the truth of the word. Now, Paul said in one of his writings, I have become all things to all people so that in all ways I might save some. What he is saying is, I'm trying to learn their culture, I'm trying to learn their language so that I can know who they are in order to know how to reach them with the love of Christ and the gospel that can change their life. He isn't saying I'm compromising my values of the word of God in order to do that. Does this make sense? Am I losing you? Because I can see all your faces now, whereas in the sanctuary you can only see the first few rows because of the stage lights, but I see every one of you. Am I, is this connecting? So what does this have to do with the grief, uh, the hope of grief? It has everything to do with it when you consider how everything in the kingdom of God is tied together in this symbiotic relationship, and it has ripple effects in all of life. This is why you cannot compartmentalize your faith. I see people do this all the time in the church who say, I've put in my time, I've done what I needed to do, I went to church, I give faithfully to the offerings and all of that stuff, I serve and I do this, that, and the other, just don't mess with the rest of my week. And that's, you know, listen, it's not for me to try to condemn you or anything like that, but the reality is the God I understand of Scripture and the Jesus who came and gave his life for us didn't compartmentalize what he was doing when he was trying to save us from our sin. He was all in. As a matter of fact, he was more in than 
anybody on the face of the earth ever has been for any specific purpose that God has laid out. He was more in than Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or any of the heroes of the faith that you might put down as people you admire. So if he gave his all, what, does, what should we be doing? Right? We should be giving our all. Okay, you say, Brandon, I can't give up my work or my family. Nobody's asking you to give those things up. What the scripture I understand and read says is that we should take Christ where we go. Our faith should be lived out in our work and in our homes and, and on the football field or the soccer field or the baseball field or the basketball court, any of these arenas, in the grocery store, behind the wheel of our car when somebody cuts us off in midstream. Christ should be lived in every arena of life. We know that creation, verse 22, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We're going to get back to that in just a moment. Verse 24, we were given this hope when we were saved. And in parentheses, my version of Scripture says, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it, do we? So we've been promised in the Word of God that if you are a child of God who has surrendered your life to Christ, there is a hope of eternal life. That what you suffer now in these light and temporary trials is just that, light and temporary compared to the eternal glory of eternal life of Christ. And so what we suffer now is nothing compared to that. Plus, we don't have what we wait for. We don't have the second return of Christ. We don't have the new bodies. How many of you have aches and pains? Guess what? You don't have a new body yet, right? But you will have at the second coming of Christ. We will have a body like the risen Christ had when he came out of that tomb. He could appear behind walls. This sounds really almost like sci-fi-ish, and I'm a sci-fi. I like sci-fi movies and fantasy movies, those kind of things, where you, know, you can kind of walk through walls and all of that. But the reality is we are told that that can happen, or at least we experience that that happens in Scripture. It says, Jesus appeared before his disciples when they were locked in the room. How do you do that? Is he magic? Is he like uh, David Copperfield, for some of you who remember that guy? Or Bla David Blaine's another one? Or there's several other magicians out there who can just, is he a razzle-dazzler? I mean, how does he do this? Well, he has a different body. But it's also the same physical body. Because what did he say to Thomas when he had risen from the dead, who had doubted whether or not Jesus had rose? He sees Thomas in that upper room as he's appeared to them, and he says, Thomas, come here. I want you to touch my, touch my hand. See that nail print? And check out my side. You remember where I was pierced? Put your hand in there. It's me. And what does Thomas do when he physically touches the risen body of Christ? He falls on his face before Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says something so powerful there that 
fits with what we're talking about now. He says, blessed are you who have seen and believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Because guess what crowd we are in? The ones who have not seen, touched, or felt the physical resurrected body of Christ with our hands or seen it with our eyes or heard his voice with our ears, but yet still believe. This is what Paul's talking about. Verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows that the Spirit knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes every... Here's the famous verse I hear quoted a lot, and it's only ver, ver, quoted halfway. We know God causes all things to work together. Praise Him. Right? Except there's a caveat. What else does it say? God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His good purpose. I probably quoted the wrong version of Scripture because that's how I memorized it as a kid. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So who, who, do, who, does, who do things work out for? What does that verse tell? What is Paul telling us? For, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purpose. So God's mean to the other people? No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand that verse. It's not like God's saying zap, zap, zap to those who don't love him and, are, and, and, and who, you know, have surrendered their lives to him. It's that they've not put themselves in a place of blessing. They've exempted themselves from that grace, from that opportunity of blessing, because they don't believe or have rejected the word of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you with me? Okay. He works things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his good purposes. When we have surrendered to him, we are, we are surrendering to the call of his good purposes. And we are obedient to what he desires of us. Okay, let's continue. Verse, yeah, let's, let me do 29. For, in adva- for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many other brothers and sisters. This is that predestination verse that gets a lot of people weirded out. Like, so he knew that some were going to be saved and some were going to go to hell. That's a horrible, gross misinterpretation of this passage of Scripture. Some of your versions of Scripture say those he knew he preordained. Do you know what he's talking about here? If you read it in the Greek and you really try to understand how difficult it is to translate it into English, what is really coming across here is that God had a plan from the beginning of time that Jesus would be the one who would come to set captives free from sin and death. So consider this. Why would God create a good and perfect world where there would be the possibility for sin to exist? Does that mean God is imperfect? I get this all the time. No, because for God to be love, he has to provide an opportunity for the rejection of that love or he wouldn't be loved because love does not force itself on someone else. So there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden that God said, don't eat of this or you'll die. It wasn't God tempting fate. It wasn't God trying to be cruel. 
It wasn't him saying, don't eat this. <laughs> no, he's saying, don't do this. Okay? If you didn't have a choice to love somebody, would that be called love? Is that the definition of love? Is to be forced to love somebody? No. So God, in his loving kindness, provides us an alternative. But the alternative is not what he wants us to choose. He actually says, there's, there's actually something bad that will happen if you do this. So I'm telling you right now, don't do it. That's what we tell our kids, right? Don't do this. It is an option, but it's not an option I ever want you to choose. And of course, we know Adam and Eve chose to do that, which they were told not to do. And thus, sin entered the world. Now, God, who is loving and good, knew there was a possibility that the first humans were going to do something really stupid. That if there is an option to reject me, then I need to have an option to save them because they're never going to be able to do it on their own. And so from the beginning of time, Paul's even telling us this, there was a plan set in place that if they do something stupid, this is what I'm going to have to do. Okay? And so he did. And at just the right time in human history, God stepped out of eternity into time, took on the flesh of humanity in this person we call Jesus. And he dealt with once and for all the problem of sin and death. And so in the very beginning of time, where does this predetermination thing fall into place? Those he knew, he preordained. God knew there would be a day when he would have to come on the face of the earth to deal with the sins of humanity. And he knew there would be a people that could be saved from sin and death who believe in his son, who believe in Jesus. Those people from the beginning of time were preordained, not individuals ordained to heaven or hell, but a group of people who would become known as Christians. People that would become known as Christ followers. Or in the early days of Christianity, before they even had a label like Christian, they were called people of the way. And that comes from John 14, verse 6. And having chosen them, he called them to become, come to him. And having called them, he gave them the right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Anybody who becomes a child of God by belief through Christ Jesus gets access to that throne room of grace, and we can approach that with boldness. Okay? Here's the takeaway. We grieve with hope knowing that our pain is temporary compared to the future glory with Christ. And here's how we break this down. There are three groanings that happen here. The first one is all of creation groans. Let me give you in simple terms. <clears throat> Before the fall... Everything was in perfect balance in God's creation. There were no tornadoes, hurricanes, floods. Um, there were no opportunities to become hurt by your physical surroundings. Guess what? There was no food chain. Did you know that? If you read Genesis 1 and 2, check it out. The animals, even the beasts of the field, said they ate the grains of the earth. There was no... <laughs> And again, this isn't me advocating for vegetarianism or veganism. This is just, if you go back and you scrutinize chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, you realize there was no death. And if there's no death among the living creatures that crawl on the face of the earth or among humans, then what did they eat? 
they ate the grains of the field, and humans ate the fruits of the trees of the garden. So when did death enter the world? Death entered when they broke God's commands. So what happened in that breaking isn't the relationship just between God and man and between man and wife. Guess what else broke? There was a breaking within all of creation. Because in Genesis 3, as I mentioned a while ago, it was subjected to the curse of God. You will work and toil all the days of your life just to eke out a living from the dust from which you came. It's not going to be easy for you. So the ground was cursed. And the ground being cursed over time devolves into this groaning of tsunamis that wipe out hundreds of thousands of people and hurricanes that flood cities and tear down eddy or, or, or these, these levees. And, and we say, because I get this all the time too, where, how come God causes these things to happen? Well, if God subjects something to a curse, it means he's withdrawing his provision and control over it. He still owns and has control over all creation. Can you imagine if he withdrawed any more than he has? How bad that would be? So the relationship between God and creation has suffered because of the curse of sin and death which pervades it. But God can speak into and work into that through the, prow the power of those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, through the prayers of his faithful. They can even be commanded. What did Jesus say when the storms came up while they were on the Sea of Galilee and he's sleeping in the front of the boat and the disciples are there and the boat's about to capsize and Jesus is sleeping? Do you, do you remember that? There's a story there where... How do you sleep in that? Well, I guess it's like the boat's rocking you like a baby, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you ever deep sleeper, you can sleep through a hurricane, wake up, and the house is gone, but you're still laying on the bed. And you're like, what happened? Some people really sound sleepers. I guess Jesus was too. But I also think it was a moment of opportunity for him to teach the disciples where their faith is. And so they shake him awake and say, can't you tell what's happening? We're going to die here. And what does he do? He stands up and he says, peace be still. And it says, immediately the wind and the waves ceased. And can you imagine the quiet that ensued in that moment and the disciples standing in front of the creator as they see him control even the weather around them? He said, Jesus said, the things you've seen me do, He's telling his disciples this. Do you know what he says to them? The things you've seen me do, you will do even greater things than these. But we don't believe it. The church doesn't believe it today. We don't live like we have power or authority. We don't live like Paul says that we have the glory of God in us. We, we tend to throw around this false sense of humility, thinking it makes us look holier, but the reality is we don't live into the fullness of God who gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can continue the mission that Jesus started as the body of Christ. Instead, we are a body that is in a full-body cast, up in a, up in a hospital room somewhere, immobilized. Because we've forgotten who we are and whose we are, and we fear man more than we fear God. That's the problem. 
And so all of creation groans and it writhes in great anticipation of the day when God will restore the proper balance, which leads us to the next one. Believers also groan. Do you know why creation groans and believers groan? What was God's command to the first humans in Genesis 1? They'd be fruitful and multiply, but they were to what? Have dominion over all of God's creation. Do you know why creation groans? Not because it's going to share in that, but because it's going to be put back into proper perspective where humans will have proper dominion and not abuse it anymore. I'm not one of those weird climate guys, but if you're a believer in Christ, we are still called to steward God's creation the way he would. I don't want to get into debates with you on climate change or global warming. The truth of the matter is, if you're a believer in Christ, we are called to be giving life rather than taking it, and not only to humans, but to everything around us. Do you steward what has been entrusted to you well because it is a gift from God and truly not your own? We groan, obviously, because we don't have new bodies. We've been subjected to degradation. As I mentioned earlier, I asked you to raise your hand. Are you different now physically than you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago? How many of you have aches and pains now that you didn't have then? How many of you feel the weight and the burden of gravity pulling you closer to the ground? I'm shrinking. I'm 47 now. I used to be six foot tall, but I measure myself, and I'm like 5'11". Where did that inch go, right? And I feel, I feel the pains and the aches, and I know some of you are like, wait till you hit 80. I'm not going to make it, <laughs> all right? I, I think I watch my, my son and my daughters do these acrobatics and crazy things and jump off of things that are like six foot high. And I'm thinking, I can't jump off a two foot high without getting shin splints or something. I can't do that anymore. I, my body just won't allow me to do that. And you say, well, if you go to the gym and work out, you could be. No, it's just I can't do it anymore. I fell off the roof a few years ago. I still suffer with I can feel when the rain's coming. Kids are like, my dad's old. Yeah, I am. And all the hair that I've lost and the gray in my beard, it wasn't, I didn't have this when I first came here. I think it's you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's my kids, I promise. No, it's my wife. I'm just kidding. It's me. It's me. <laughs> but do you hear what Paul's saying? He's talking about our physical bodies. He's not talking about our spiritual bodies that are groaning. Our physical bodies who feel the weight of sin and death, even though we be set free from sin and death because we are believers in Christ, it doesn't mean that our bodies don't feel the weight of that slow fade. Yes, we believe in miracles and miraculous healings and we anoint with oil and we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that God would bring healing to everybody. But the truth of the matter, this side of heaven before the second coming of Christ, we will eventually die. That sounds hopeful, doesn't it? It's horrible, right? You're going to die. 
That sounds really bad. But the truth is, we are going to. And the only hope that we can have in these groaning bodies that are fading with time, as Paul calls them, tents that wither and fade. The only hope we have is in new life, not only in Christ in the here and now, but in the there and then. Knowing that there is a time and a place, and we're going to talk about this next Sunday, where there is no sin or pain or sorrow or death or crying or anything like that. There is no degradation. There is nothing that is bad in that place and in that space. I can't even fathom a place or a space like that. My best day on earth is nothing compared to one day in the heavenly realms face-to-face with the Father in that kind, of a, that kind of an environment. That's why we have that hope. But now our bodies are groaning, creation is groaning, and it says the Holy Spirit. Paul says the Holy Spirit groans. Now, it's not that he's, he's uh, imperfect, but he groans. How does he groan? The words that are used here or mine said words that cannot be expressed. The actual translation of that is means wordless. I mean, literally, there are no words. Have you ever tried to pray, but you don't know what to pray? And it's not because you're desperately in a bad situation. It's just because I want to pray, but I don't know what to pray. I hear that a lot. Brandon, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. So I just don't do it. If you spend time with the Lord, even if you sit in silence, meditating on his prayer, I don't mean Eastern meditation. Please don't run out of here. Brandon's going all Eastern meditation on it. No, meditating on the Lord and on his word. Okay? If you can do that and you still don't know what to pray, guess what the Holy Spirit does? He intercedes on our behalf with groanings that are beyond words. The word for groaning also means to sigh. It's kind of a... And do you know what's cool about the Holy Spirit? I said this to my class this morning because we're starting a, a class on the Holy Spirit. The word in the Old Testament for spirit or the Spirit of God was ruach. Can you do it? Say you have to. It's a Jewish thing, or it's a Hebrew thing. Yeah. But what does ruach sound like? It sounds like you're breathing out. Isn't that cool? Ruach. Do you know what God does in Genesis chapter two as He forms man out of the dust of the ground? What does He do into the man's nostrils? Ruach. He breathes the breath of life into man. The Holy Spirit sighs when there are no words that can be given. And so he steps in the gap for us. And he fills that empty space that cannot even utter a word. And the Lord hears and he responds. And he responds in ways that we can't even conceive or imagine. In the New Testament, the word for Holy Spirit or spirit is called pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma. And that word means breath. Did you know that? 
The word for Holy Spirit also means breath or wind. And I was talking to my class this morning, and I said on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what was the sign of the entrance of the Holy Spirit into the upper room where the disciples were? A, a sound like a mighty rushing pneuma. And it was so loud, in fact. It was so earth-jarring, in fact, that it not only filled the upper room, but rattled out into the streets so that those who had been there for the Jewish festival of Pentecost came out to see what was going on. It said something like tongues of fire rested over each of the disciples. And they were empowered with the full authority and the glory of God as they stepped out into the streets with boldness, not with arrogance, to proclaim the risen Jesus to the community around them without pulling any punches. We don't like to go into churches where there's a, you caused his crucifixion and you caused his crucifixion. You're the one who nailed him to the cross. That's hellfire and brimstone stuff. We don't like that. That makes us uncomfortable. But that's what Peter was doing if you read the whole chapter of Acts chapter 2. He said, you guys are the ones who nailed him to the cross. You guys were the ones who put him there. But he was the Messiah we've been waiting on. And later on, they ask, after hearing that, what should we do? And Peter says, repent of your sins. We don't do enough of that. We just want everybody to feel good and cozy. Right? We want everybody to feel good. We want to have a positive, encouraging message like K-Love, if you're familiar with that Christian station. We just want everybody to be happy and sing-songy, but the reality is that's the enemy's plan to keep us on a path that's going to lead us to nowhere. As a matter of fact, will lead us to destruction in the end. The Holy Spirit groans because he knows that we don't have words to express to God really what's in the depths of our hearts. The Holy Spirit groans and sighs and breathes out in the presence of God those words that cannot be uttered by human lips. And it is in those moments that true healing from God comes for the ones who are submitted to Christ and are willing to receive what he has to offer. You know what's interesting, though? And I'll close with this. As I get older and I continue this walk of faith called Christianity and learning more about God and digging deeper and asking him to reveal himself to me, the closer you get to that throne room of grace, as Hebrews tells us, the closer you get to the throne, the heavier it is. And it's not a heaviness of oppression. It's a heaviness of the weight of glory. And when you step closer into the glory that, of God's presence, it's a fearful thing. Many of you have heard me say that back in 2018, I went on my first sabbatical ever, and I went on a mission retreat to Guatemala, Guatemala City in Guatemala, and I decided I was going to spend time digging into the depths of God's love. I took books, and I'm a researcher, reader, I'm one of those nerds, and so 
I want to know more about God, so uh, about God's love. So I took all these resources. You know what God did? And I don't say this lightly. God showed up in a way I didn't anticipate because as I started reading and journaling and praying, because that's what I was dedicating this whole month-long trip to, I got closer and he started revealing things to me about myself and about his love for me in spite of myself. And I couldn't handle the weight of his glory and his forgiveness and his grace. And the deeper I went into that, the more fearful I became. Did you know I didn't last a month? I left in a panic. Some of our friends could tell you that because my wife was out with my friends one night when I called hyperventilating in a panic attack, a literal anxiety attack, desperate to leave. And it wasn't because <laughs> it's hard to explain other than the only way I could put it into words. It's like when, when God or the angel of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament or even in the New they're fearful. They fall on their faces in a panic, in a panicked sense of, I don't know what to do. How can I be in the presence of the Lord and live kind of experience? This is where you hear the angel of the Lord of the presence of God saying, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, ever been there. But the weight of glory is not easily bore, but the Holy Spirit who groans on our behalfs knows <laughs> the deepest recesses of who we are in our lives and is able to intercede on our behalfs and bring us to that throne room when we ourselves struggle to be there in his presence in the way we desire to be. It's interesting to know when, when revivals break out and the Holy Spirit pours himself out on a mass of people, a lot of people flee that have been praying for revival because they're, it's not what they expected or anticipated and it causes them to be uneasy because you can't control it. And we don't like what we can't control and God could never be controlled and when he shows up and he's uncontrollable, people with control issues run. So where are you today? I'll close with this as our worship team comes forward. One night at a dinner, a man who had spent many summers in Maine fascinated his companions by telling them of his experiences in a little town called Flagstaff, not Texas or Arkansas. Where's Flagstaff? Thank you. Geography. I got an A in there when I was, actually, they never taught geography when I was a kid. Any hoodles. The town was to be flooded, this town, the small town of Flagstaff as a part of a large lake uh, for which a dam was going to be built. It says, in the months before it was to be flooded, all improvements and repairs in the whole town were stopped. Why repair anything in the whole village if it was going to be wiped out? And so nearly a year of time goes by. Everybody has stopped repairing anything, stopped fixing anything up. Week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled, more gone to seed, more woe-begone. And the man concluded his story with this explanation. Where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. Let me say that again. 
where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present, and there are so many people living these bedraggled lives because they have no hope in the future, so there's no power in the present. And friends, today in our churches, there is no hope for a future, so there's no power in the present, and so the Holy Spirit cannot do and cannot be where he is not welcome. And you cannot have hope with that understanding. There is a hope of a future if you're a child of God. Even in your frustrations, tragedies, and, and difficulties, there is a future. And it's a glorious future. We groan temporarily in these broken bodies. Creation groans temporarily, but they don't groan and they don't suffer without hope because they know God will restore everything. And if you want to be a part of that rest restoration, you have to be regenerated anew in Christ Jesus. You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so today, if you've been walking around moping, hopeless, frustrated about your current plight or situation, or maybe even just the sheer fact that you don't desire God the way you think you should desire Him, maybe you need to step up and seek him in a way you've never sought him before. And maybe, just maybe, he'll show up in a way he's never showed up before in your life. You can leave here, having checked a box, saying, well, put in another Sunday, we're in good shape. Or you can leave here with a renewed sense of purpose, saying, I know I have a future, I need to be living with the power of the present, knowing that God is with me. Or maybe you're saying, I need to know that God is with me. I want to have the power in the present. I want to have a hope of a future. Repent. Repent. Surrender your life to Christ to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We have people down standing on the front here that will pray with you. If you want to pray, since we don't have altars up here, we will pray with you. But don't leave until you've made a decision one way or the other. Father, we love you. Thank you for thank you for hope. Thank you for even the process of grief which leads us to a place of wholeness and acceptance. Forgive us where we stall out. Forgive us, Father, when we don't have the energy to go another step. But we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to infuse us with a sense of courage, with a sense of authority to move further than we ever thought we could. Remind us it's not about us, it's always about you. And that, Father, <laughs> when we live that way, we receive your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.